Weirdo bookworms, unite. We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us. So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading. Hi, everybody. This is Sandra. And this is Scott. Welcome to Genre Junkies. So um, I was going to make a joke about how it's a very special episode of Genre Junkies. It is a very special episode of Genre Junkies. (laughs) They're all special. This is a special, special show full of special, special people. And tonight is no exception because we have another author interview. We we conned yet another innocent soul into (laughs) letting us review their book and then talk to us about it. Um. Very, very excited tonight's episode. Uh, we're we're going to talk all about it in a few minutes, but Jennifer Grazer Dornbush, uh, the author of Hole in the Woods, is going to join us for tonight's episode. You guys are going to love her. You are going to adore her. So, Scott, how's things? Uh, well, everything is on fire. Everything's on fire. The yes. world looks like we live on Venus or Mars. some other planet. Mars, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. The red planet, yes. Uh, we can't go outside. Um, <laughs> we literally can't because the air, I mean, like we can, but the air is unsafe and has been for days. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how things are going. <laughs> um, Stitches is puffed up like a little chinchilla, which is really cute. We still have Jalapeno, the caterpillar, here living with us. I think he might make it with us through the winter at this point. I think he's like, you know, I don't need to be a moth. I don't need to fly. Who needs to fly? (laughs) I like this life where I get wonderful plants and people coddle me. And a cat watches me out of the corner of her eye (laughs) and wants to eat me. But, you know, there's worse things. It's bred into him that, like, everything wants to eat him, so. But he seems to trust you pretty well. Yes. Well, he's my child. (laughs) So, um, let's see. I was trying to think if there's anything else super exciting and thrilling. And there there is kind of something. We started watching the Umbrella Academy, finally. Oh, my God. There's that. There was something else. Oh, okay. No, okay. Let's give the Umbrella Academy uh, a moment. Um, Probably by the time... You hear our next episode, we will hopefully be caught up on seasons one and two. That's the plan. That's the plan. Um, my mom is a huge fan of the Umbrella Academy. She's been harassing me since the first season came out to watch this. Total, You guys know how it is. You guys are readers, too. And we talk about this all the time. There's stuff that we like to watch, but it's just, it's just hard. And also, as somebody that is on a movie review show, The Cult Show, and sometimes we review movies for Spooky Slumber Party, like, it's really hard for us... To find the time. To, to find the time to, like, do whole seasons of shows. And we love our shows. But we just, it just takes a while. But right now, we're just, like... What are movies? Let's watch The Umbrella Academy. That's way more important. Um, No, I was going to say we have our TBR for October. Yes, we do. Let's go into it. Yes, let's make an announcement. And we'll put it on social media as well. Um, As you know, (laughs) October is all horror all the time. And we usually throw in a bonus episode in there as well. So uh, this this October will be no exception. So are you guys ready for the October TBR? Hit me with it. We are going to review three books in the month of October because otherwise we'd only re- be reviewing two books. And that's not enough. It's not enough for horror October no, for no, spoopy no. season. <laughs> no, no, no. All right. We are proud to present the Genre Junkies Halloween. October TBR. 
<laughs> okay, we're going to kick it off with the latest novel from our friend, David Sodergren, Maggie's Grave, a horror novel. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So this is about a small Scottish town. Uh, it says the small Scottish town of Aachen, Milan. Wait, David, you didn't tell us how to pronounce this word. Aachen, Milan. Okay. It's a small Scottish town. And um, is dead and has been for years. <laughs> <laughs> It sits in the shadow of a mountain, forgotten and atrophying in the perpetual gloom. 47 residents are all that remain. There's nothing to do there, nothing to see, except for a solitary grave near the top of the mountain. Maggie Wall, buried here as a witch, reads the faded inscription. But sometimes the dead don't stay buried, especially when they have unfinished business. A relentless folk horror nightmare from the author of The Forgotten Island, Maggie's Grave, will disturb and shock in equal measure. Well, yeah, it's a David Sodergren book. If it doesn't disturb and shock in equal measure, I don't want it. <laughs> I will read anything that he writes, but I would be shocked if he did not shock and disturb. <laughs> um, Very excited for that. We love a folk horror moment. Uh, this is going to be great. This is going to be super, super great. I'm super, super great. And two David books in a year, two David books in three months is just like got me jumping up and down with glee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's juicy. It's very juicy. Um, <laughs> okay. The next book, um, we're going to have some special guest reviewers on for this novel. Um, and that is, uh, well, we'll, we'll tell you a little closer to, to the time. But... We are proud to present. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to present this. The second book for October TBR is Adam Caesar's Clown in a Cornfield. This book has broken the internet and social media, and um, we would not be doing our due diligence as you know horror reviewers if we didn't get in on the Clown in the Cornfield. Great title. Absolutely attractive book. I am absolutely shocked that you have chosen to read a clown novel i know i'm afraid of clowns this um, is partially why we're going to have some very special guests on the very special episode <laughs> that we're going to be holding about this book because we'll see if sandra's able to make it through <laughs> so just to briefly tell you about this book in case you're not aware of it Quinn Maybrook and her father have moved to tiny, boring Kettle Springs to find a fresh start. But what they don't know is that ever since the Bay Pen corn syrup factory has shut down, Kettle Springs has cracked in half. Kettle Springs is caught in a battle between old and new, tradition and progress. It's a fight that looks like it will destroy the town until Friendo, the Bay Pen mascot, a creepy clown in a pork pie hat goes homicidal and decides that the only way for Kettle Springs to grow back is to cull the rotten crop of kids who live there now. Ooh, it's a, it's a child murder horror movie? I horror think, book? I think so, but I don't think it's going to be like, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's kind of like retro slasher feel uh -huh. as opposed to like... Yeah, kids probably means like high schoolers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's like babies. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, this book just sounds like a lot of fun. And so tell me about the third book we're going to be covering. The third book. I am very, very excited for this one. Um, this book has a lot of buzz, a lot of buzz. And I've only read one thing by this author. And that is Stephen Graham Jones's The Only Good Indians. I've been, this is one of my highly anticipated books of the year. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. And I've been saving it for just this uh just this time. A tale of revenge, cultural identity, and the cost of breaking from tradition in this latest novel from the Jordan Peele of horror literature, Stephen Ooh, Graham that's Jones. an interesting comparison. Yeah, seamlessly blending classic horror and a dramatic narrative with sharp social commentary, The Only Good Indians follows four American Indian men after a disturbing event from their youth puts them in a desperate struggle for their lives. Tracked by an entity bent on revenge, these childhood friends are helpless as the culture and traditions they left behind catch up with them in a violent, vengeful way. And um, Stephen Graham Jones is a uh, First Nations person, and so this is his own voices, not something weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it's important, you know, one, that it is own voices, but two, that we're going to be reading an, an own voices story. I think that that's cool. That's always, yeah, that's always good. Always, always, always good, especially when it's something where you're you're really delving into a culture and a heritage. You want that... Um, really from the source <laughs> and not some weird watered down colonizer version of the source um isn't this a great tbr are we so it's excited a great TBR. Oh, i am so very stoked. excited and we'll probably read more stuff um in an extracurricular fashion but this will be the episode these will be the episodes oh my gosh so speaking yes of episodes mm -hmm. <laughs> let's get started okay so speaking of episodes, let's jump right into tonight's book. So I'm going to give you a little uh, synopsis. We're going to talk about it in a spoiler-free capacity. We're going to jump to the author interview and then wrap it up with the spoilers. So here we go. Jennifer Grazer Dornbush's Hole in the Woods. July 1989, in a sleepy Michigan town, high school grad Nina Laramie heads out with her friends and is never seen alive again. Months later, her skeleton is found near a remote party spot in the forest. The M.E. determines Nina has been brutally raped and bludgeoned to death. Fear and anger ripple through this tight-knit community when the case goes cold. Thirty years later, Riley St. James, a Detroit PD assigned to Nina's case, is determined to get her first big cold case win despite having a similar past to the victim. Relying on her investigative prowess and gut instinct, Riley tracks down a witness who saw Nina Laramie's murder. But as the truth comes to light, Riley must face the killers who want their secret to stay in the hole in the woods. And this is, of course, most importantly, I guess to say, based on the real life true crime case of Shannon Siders um, in Michigan, which was a cold case that went dormant from 1989 to 2011. And then um, Shannon's uh, case did end with justice. And, yes. Um, so that synopsis kind of buries the lead when it comes to that. Like this is based on true crime. Yes. It is, it is a fictional story. Yes. But, you know, with fictional characters, but the, 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 the basis behind it is based on, on reality. 
Um, this is also a very personal case for Jennifer, uh, our author, because her father was the M.E. Um, on this case. Uh, and we talked to her in the interview about her dad and what it's like growing up in a medical examiner household. And it's wild and it should be a TV show because it's wow. She lived such an adventure. She really did. It is a very, very unique, interesting and you know, kind of uh, an exciting experience in a way. Like, yes. it definitely shaped her into at least what she does, if not who she is today. I think, yeah, I, I can't wait for you guys to hear that part of the interview. Um, it's so cool. And I think that that would be, I mean, of course, you know, we don't know exactly, but I think that would have been an environment where Scott and I would have thrived growing up in that household. For, but for very different reasons. For very different reasons. <laughs> but yeah. You, you would have loved it because you're a creep. Oh, and- stop. No, I would have loved... <laughs> no. We both would have loved it because we're fascinated with science and we're into learning about death science and biology and uh, true crime. I agree with all of the science parts. Yes. But you're the murderino. I am a murderino. I am a murderino. So, oh my gosh, what a cool perspective, though, to write this book. This is, there's, there are some very unique perspectives uh, presented in this book that uh, Jennifer gives to the audience. For example, Right off the bat, um, I believe it's chapter three, you actually hear from the first person view of the victim, of Nina. Oh my gosh. Um, It's very powerful and it's a very different thing. I mean, already this book is a fictionalized account, right? Like names have been changed and, you know, we've added in this whole narrative about Detective St. James, but um, you don't get to hear... The, the victim speak. And it's unfortunate that we have to say victim and not survivor because, of course, she didn't, she didn't make it. Um, and that is, I mean, obviously, <laughs> kind of goes without saying, if you're sensitive to the content that we've already disclosed, this wouldn't be the book for you. So I'd like to go into my experience right off the bat. Go into Because it. this book was, is still an absolute obsession. Oh, I loved ding, the ding, book. Ding. That's our highest award. <laughs> I loved it for just for what it was as, as a wonderful like thriller mystery. Yes. But then I had to know more about the real crime. And I listen to true crime shows with you on occasion, but I don't like get really deep into the weeds in true crime. Mm. It's something that I enjoy with you, but yeah. not on my own. I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Okay. But this absolutely got me as both true crime and as a, as a, a novel and i'm just i'm i'm just absolutely head over heels obsessed with this book still oh, now he's buzzing about it um i think this book is worth um all the accolades you just said 100% for me this was a page turner book i i just was compulsively getting through it and it's not a long book or anything but it just like the way it reads is you're just like Ah, I I don't want to draw towards the end, but I want to draw towards the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to point out what makes this book so strong for me is the characters that are in it. This isn't just a okay, here are here are the here's the evidence that's discovered or yeah. you know, a few kind of 
faceless detectives just discovering things as they go along. These are real characters with real lives with with even though some of them are pretend people well, i mean they're pretend they're pretend people <laughs> yes but they but the story is driven by the characters yes not by the case i i i totally get what you're saying it's not a procedural no it's not a it's procedural. a drama it's a drama um and i don't mind procedurals any bit but um for some reason for, for some reason that would have felt wrong for this story it just would have um i'm i'm just really impressed i'm really impressed with jennifer and how she treated this book and um you know one of our goals we like to do here at little old genre junkies is to try to get books into people's hands and i don't think this book is in enough people's hands i i agree (laughs) and Um, we're doing our part to try to force it on everyone um because it's really good it's really good and true crime i i don't want to say true crime is having a moment because it's been having a moment since before we were born um (laughs) You know what I mean? But I feel like people are constantly discovering true crime. Either they get into it from Netflix documentaries, podcasts, TV shows, whatever it is. Like, And there's such a huge depth and breadth of, of like media to, to digest in true crime. And I think especially reading a really well-written fictionalized account is something that I don't think a lot of true crime fans have done. No. I mean, when it comes to the entertainment categories, Mm -hmm. true crime is the second most popular category when it comes to podcasts next to comedy, which is so broad. I mean, both of them are broad. And there's a reason why that is. People are fascinated by this. There's a reason why Law & Order SVU is on 24-7 on USA. <laughs> it's because there's an audience for it. And and you know, we can we can go on for days as, as far as the psychology of that of why we're drawn to that right. sort of information. But I can't, but I really I don't know that I can fully explain it. So we talk a little bit to Jennifer because as you said, I'm a murderino. Um, <laughs> stay sexy, don't get murdered. Huge fan, huge fan of those ladies over at my favorite murder. Um, shout out. <laughs> plugging a, a podcast not related to us that don't need our help no but one of them is from <laughs> sonoma county karen's from sonoma county so that's like she's you know we feel like we know her yeah. anyway um yeah they don't, they don't need our help um so as i mentioned when we talked to jennifer i have been into true crime since i was a kid um i've been to, into anything true and bizarre cryptids tv shows alien tv shows ghost shows a- anything like that where people have accounts of like what happened to them uh true crime is something i got into because of my mom who is into it and it's something that we enjoyed together and we still do um enjoy and for me it's it's hard because a lot of people don't get it and they think you're just a sicko or they think it's weird or perverse or whatever. And it's like, it's so much more than that. For me, a lot of it is about with any of this true stuff I'm talking about, I like to have people tell their stories. I think that everybody deserves to have their story told, especially when something tragic happens to them. Um, 
And I, of course, want there to be justice. There is nothing as satisfying as when you get invested in a true crime story and there is a sense of of justice, of resolution. And even though it's not perfect, somehow in our lizard brain, we want it because we're like, yeah, like, I know that it's not going to bring this person back. I know that it's not going to, you know, change what happened to this person's loved ones. But it's like, we want that, though. We want that, like... Some, it it was righted. This wrong was righted. Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah. <laughs> but, it, but again, what is so unique about this novel, in my experience, is when you listen to true crime podcasts, when you read true crime novels... A lot, a lot of times the victims are introduced like this is kind of the life that they lived at mm-hmm. the very beginning of a story. And then uh, and then everything after that is really just all about the facts of the case. Mm. And there might be tidbits of something that was going on in an investigator's life that informed the investigation. But there's not there, there's a there's a disconnect. There's a lack of humanity in, in the storytelling. Yeah. What this does is. By creating original characters and creating a a slightly original story, mm. it humanizes the experience. It makes these people real. It makes the emotions and the terror and the joy of having justice, it, it makes it more human. I... I totally see what you mean. And uh, this is not one of those true crime stories that focuses a lot on the criminal mind and the criminal motive. So if that's not so much your thing, then um, because I know for some people it's not, this isn't one of those. So know that going in, if that's more how you like your true crime is from kind of the other side of it. Um, Geez, I guess like I don't want to... I don't even want to say too much more because it's just I want to, you know, kind of let the interview speak for itself and then get into the spoilers. But um, I will say uh, we kind of mentioned this, the fictionalized detective, Riley St. James. um, She's very fabulous. And I really liked her. Really, really liked her a lot. I did too, and I really liked who ends up kind of being her partner in the investigation. She kind of Sheriff Grimes, yeah, yeah, is um, not the not a perfect person. There's yeah. a lot of things about him that are, is questionable, yeah. but again, that um, that complicated relationship that they have, and that the understanding that they're able to come to at certain points, as far as they both care ultimately for different reasons, is um, you know. I really enjoy I really enjoy uh both of those characters. Yeah. Um she's kind of works with a couple different law enforcement um men in law enforcement and you know this is a little bit a book a little bit a book about her experience as a woman in this world and not saying that the things she went through men and men investigators don't go through but because she has a past that's not entirely dissimilar as it says in the description um she brings a different perspective to the investigation and there's something really, really cool about cold cases getting justice that is beyond satisfying. So we'll talk more about that in the interview and the spoiler section as well. So if you haven't gotten it from at least what I have been saying, mm-hmm. I believe that this has a mass appeal. I agree. And especially more than anything else, just knowing how much people love true crime there's no reason that it shouldn't be mass appeal 
There's yeah. no reason. I don't even have a whole I don't even have a whole like lecture to go into no. why I think it's mass appeal. I feel like we've already said it. Yeah, because it because true crime's a thing. <laughs> and even if true crime is not your thing, yeah. if you love if you love th- good stories, good characters, and especially if you love thriller mysteries, which a whole lot of people do, yeah, this is still a fantastic book, and you should check it out. Absolutely, good good point there, Scott. Should we do it? Let's do it. Okay, everybody, we're so excited to introduce you to tonight's author, Jennifer Grazer Dornbush. Enjoy the interview. Enjoying the show? Leave us a review. You can find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies, as well as genrejunkies.com. And now, back to the show. Genre Junkies, please welcome Jennifer Grazer Dornbush, author of A Hole in the Woods. Welcome. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank yeah. you so much for, for being here. We've, um, we haven't had Jennifer on the show before. We're obviously reviewing her book. So we'll try to keep the interview spoiler free. And if we have some spoiler sections, we'll hide them. Uh, we'll hide it later. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I know it's hard. It's hard, but we'll do it. <laughs> so Jennifer, uh, tell us about your background as a writer and crime novelist. Sure. Yes. So a very unlikely path or maybe very likely. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it seemed unlikely to me, but um, I, so I grew up in Northern Michigan and in a very small country kind of place. And my father was the medical examiner for three counties up there. And the office for the medical examiner was in our house. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so I grew up around death investigations since I was a baby mm. and forensics. And it was literally, you know, on our kitchen table in the, you know, home office, you know, morticians coming to the door, families of victims coming to the door, needing things, police, wow. detectives, like, but it was, it, it literally was like I was living in my own CSI world. Right. Right. I had no idea that was cool. <laughs> Gosh, it's certainly unique. It's those things you you don't think about because we're used to TV show versions, right? Of, right? of of how that looks, and that's not necessarily accurate, right? And it was years. Be- it was years before TV made it look really cool. So I was kind of like embarrassed by it. You know, what you have like a leg in your barn and like body parts in your. <laughs> freezer it's like some weird you know horror flick or something um but yeah it's the way I grew up is very different than what you see on television and it was just what we lived and breathed I did my first quote-unquote death investigation when I was eight years old with my dad and my little sister and we were it was just what we did my my dad was also a physician this was like his part quote-unquote part-time job but he averaged about a hundred deaths a year, so, so you know, one every three days or so. Wow, that's like, I mean, it's so, it's so cool that you grew up so um, immersed in science. Very immersed, very immersed. He's very scientific. We live in a very scientific home. Um, like when I was learning my anatomy, we had a skeleton that we named Sam. And Sam was an anatomical skeleton. It was a real person. This is before they, you know, this is when they used to actually take real people and make teaching skeletons from them, Mm -hmm. you know, like donated bodies. 
so I got to learn all my bones and fissures and everything on a real, you know, skeleton who lived with us. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so, it's, uh, there's many more, many more lessons. But yeah, it was just I didn't think anything of it until you you grow up a little bit and you're like, oh wait, you're you guys don't do this, right? <laughs> you don't have literal skeletons in your closet. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has a skeleton in their closet. Oh my gosh. Ours also had a, I know, our, my, well, here's, and here's the funny thing, like, cause everything was a lesson, right? So my dad would put, um, put a cigarette in Sam's between his teeth, right? In his mouth. I'm like, dad, why is Sam smoking? Cause like we did not, you know, that was taboo. No smoking. My dad's like, that's how he died. He died smoking. And don't you ever smoke? You're going to die. You know, that's, you know, and then I later, love it. He brings home a set of black lungs from an autopsy he had just done, sets it on the kitchen table. Girls, this is a set of black lungs. I want to show you what they look like. This was a lifelong smoker. Here's a set of healthy lungs. This is what it should look like. And, you know, the lesson goes on and on. But that was just, yeah, that was a day day in the life. Effective lesson. Yeah. I never smoked. (laughs) Nobody in my None of my sisters and I ever smoked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and like, not only with the science, but, and obviously, of course, you know, you're, that's a lot of tragedy and and everything too with people's deaths. But I appreciate that there's kind of like, um, like a realism to it, kind of a death positivity, it sounds like too, in a way, you know, that like, this is what happens. And this is what this stuff looks like. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's mixed, right? Because you do learn to understand the cycle of life and that death is part of it. And I think for us, demystifying how and why people die and um, that it is a fact of life and then allowing the grieving process because my mom was like the counselor of the family. Mm. So so when people would come, she, she did all the office managing and such. So when people would come to pick up paperwork, I remember times when she would just let them talk, you know, pull them aside, sit them down, explain to them things, anything they had questions, let them talk about their loved ones. Because a lot of times when people die, the family members don't know what to do. You're not, you don't know the process and the steps and the, and you're in shock and mourning. And, um, so I got to see this very, very humane, gracious side of the death process, but then also this very scientific process. Um, and, as a result of that, they, it makes you, it also makes you realize like you got to live every day to its fullest. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to make it to tomorrow and not in a morbid way, but in the sense of being grateful for everything you have, every relationship, never wanting to let the sun go down on your anger. It really puts life into perspective. Yeah. And we got that from a very young age where, you know, I don't know how else to put it. It just was you, 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 thankfully I grew up in a house where people were my, the family. It was very much, my parents were very much about this is life is precious and amazing. And yeah, it can be snatched from you at any time. So be careful how you live and, and live it to the fullest. That's incredible. So cool. So so when did this experience of your childhood turn into a passion for writing and, and you deciding to start to write about true crime? Um, all that slash therapy? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. So I really, 
I always knew I wanted to be a writer and I did different careers like journalism and public relations and things that included writing. And then later I taught high school and college for a long time and taught writing and grammar and literature and all of that. And it wasn't until my late twenties when I was like, I really want to write, like be a writer as a profession. I better figure this out. Like life is passing me by. I better, I better stop, take this seriously. And it was at that point when I started to walk into that path and really get training and take it seriously and make schedule time in my life for it, that you start thinking like, okay, I'm a writer. Great. What do I write about? Who am I? (laughs) What am I doing? What am I putting on page that is my voice or unique to me or something that I think would be interesting for the world to to share with the world? And all of these like crime mystery stuff started to bubble up. And I, I know it sounds crazy, but I literally had not put the two and two together until that point that all of this forensic stuff in this way I'd grown up in this way of looking at the world. And I really did not put it together until I started looking at myself as a writer. And so it took a bit. And and then people actually had to point it out to me. And then, Jennifer, you know, you have all this information, all this knowledge that most people don't have. And I was like, oh, really? Hmm. And I, I really just didn't because, you know, it's kind of like when you learn, it's like if you learn a second language when you're a kid, you don't know that the rest of the world doesn't just speak two languages. Like, right. It's just who you are. So I had learned all this language and all this, this world. And I didn't realize that it was different or, or interesting. Um, I, I really didn't even didn't think it was interesting, quite honestly. Wow. Um, and people were like, you know, when you start to get feedback from people and you're writing and that's sort of like, no, this is like, you need to lean into this. This is, I'm like, oh, and then I went back to school actually, because I was like, yeah, actually, I, I kind of like this <laughs> and I, I kind of want to dig into this. So I went back and got more training and that's when I sort of fell in love with it more, obviously more from the academic side, because I'm not a practicing forensic specialist. I don't go out and solve crimes. Um, I just solve fictional ones. So <laughs> I, I loved being in that world with the real professionals and learning from them. And now a lot of them are my friends and I can just call them up and say, Hey, I'm having a question about this or that. Or, um, so I, I actually now kind of love being back in that world in the role that I'm in as a storyteller. So that's how it happened. Oh, that's really cool. So tell us a little bit about your your writing process and what your favorite part of the process is. My writing process is like a day job. I realized that if I was going to do this professionally, I had to treat it like a like a job, like a professional. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, and everybody has their own system, right? And everybody has their own life that's going on and what they can do. But I've been blessed to be able to treat it as a a professional job. So I keep professional hours. I give myself time off on the weekends. Um, I'm not a late night person. So like I'm a clock. I'm not a late night writer. Um, I, I'm like, I need my waking hours, my work hours. So that's, that's how I do it logistically. Um, I pretty much, I would have to say though, the, the one thing that shocked me about becoming a writer is how entrepreneurial it is. And so how much time you have to spend actually marketing yourself mm. and marketing your, and the publicity and the social media and all that stuff that goes along with it. So 
that's been, that's been a bit of a challenge for me. I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting the hang of it now after, you know, 15 years. But, <laughs> um, uh, and, and with some help, I definitely have learned to try to incorporate help in the areas where I'm just not the strongest. So that's helped me be able to keep focus on creativity and moving projects forward. Ooh, so like, yeah. I don't love media. I don't love publicity and marketing. I can do it, but I don't love it. So if I can get somebody to help me with that, which I have one publicist right now, then I'm happy. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I can focus on my projects <laughs> and I can feed her content all day long, but then I don't have to manage it, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, no. And that's, um, I think that that rings very true, this entrepreneurial spirit. So good for you for, for making it work. Just taking a bit, but I think I think we've got a system down now. <laughs> <laughs> so this, uh, the real life case that the novel is based on, there's a very interesting connection between that and your dad, who we were talking about. Yes, right. So this real life case is based on the case of Shannon Siders, who went missing in 1989 after she had been out with some guys partying basically and they found her body three months later and that's where my dad stepped in because she was obviously dead in the woods and so my dad stepped in as a medical examiner and that's the first time I actually heard about the case and I was I was not even living at home at the time I think it was my first year of college actually and but I was so enthralled by it because again coming from this rural small community setting this very egregious rape and murder was just not something that happened very often in our community. And it really put a dark cloud over the community. And I just thought I was kind of fascinated by it. And they just, they couldn't solve it and they couldn't solve it. The thing is a lot of people knew or had very strong suspicions about who the killers were. And that hung over the community for 25 years. Mm. And those People were in the general region, you know, area within a 50 miles or so their entire lives. So it was that fascinated me as, as I tracked the story, you know, you, you move on, but as you track the story, you know, it would come up from time to time and my dad would talk about it. And there were a lot of details he didn't share with us as the family because it was an open case, but I just found it very fascinating. And then in 2011, there was a documentary, a local documentary that was done on it. And then the cold case team started to become involved. And then we just sort of, I kept tracking it. And we were all, when you track something that long, you know, for 25 years, and you get to know the players, right? You know, the characters, you know, the family, you know, the friends, and you're like, God, I kind of want to see how this plays out. And I was able to go to the trial. They were able to make an arrest of these two brothers. And I was able to sit in on the trial five years ago. And I'd always thought this might make for a really interesting story, but I don't know a lot of the details. And I knew a lot of the details were going to come out in court. And so it was a three-week trial with two separate juries at the same time. Wow. And 24 people, I know, 24 jurors up there. And I it was like the best entertainment ever. I mean, I know that sounds terrible, murder trial, but it was like, right. I just was, I couldn't wait to get to court every morning and find out stuff, find out more. They had over 70 witnesses and it was just fascinating. And as I sat through this day after day, my mind started to click. My writer's mind started to click and I was like, oh, yep, 
click, click, click. And things started to click into place. And I started to figure out how I wanted to tell the story. So. Oh, I, I think that's so fascinating. I've, I've been into true crime since I was a kid. Um, my mom kind of like got me into it and I still am into it. And there's something about when that justice is served. And I think that's why a lot of us are into crew crime. I mean, true, true crime, wherever, whatever that word is. Um, <laughs> One of those. One of those words, because it's yeah. it's so many moving parts. And it's mm-hmm. like, of course, it's not going to make everything right for the families and the victims and all of that. But it is so satisfying when it's like, ah, oh, got it. We got it. Right. It is. It's so satisfying. And you're right. I became good friends with the victim's father, Bob. And when all this trial started and I knew I wanted to write about something, I approached him immediately to ask kind of for his blessing. I didn't really need his permission because I was going to fictionalize it, but I wanted his blessing and it's a small community. I wanted him to know what I was up to. And he's like, yes, absolutely. He, I've had wonderful conversations with him over the past five years and he will say the same thing. He'll say, it doesn't really give you um, closure but there is justice and there is a sense of peace. Yes. You know, that hole, he says, will always be in his life, always in his heart. But there is a, a sense of peace that came from it and sense of justice. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's And we want, I think as humans, we just desire that. Like there's something innate in us. We just, yeah. if, some, if the world is in chaos, we want order. If something somebody's done something wrong, we want it righted. And that's what happened here in an amazing really dramatic way. (laughs) So I was like, I need the world to know about this. And not just the real case, but hopefully the fictional case, I was able to, I wanted to fictionalize it because I wanted to have some liberties with the main character to be able to bring her through a journey and through her own journey of of peace and of something that she's dealing with. So yeah, so that actually leads into my next question is this is a story that is based on a, on a, on a real true crime but with unique and and original characters how do you go about creating and introducing these characters into this very real story yeah i <laughs> i don't know i think it's part of the magic of the writer brain that happens cuz i i don't know um i don't know that i can say like there was a i did this and this and this and this as i was listening to stories Uh, all the stories, all the characters in trial, I started to pluck out what I thought were the most interesting and emotional pieces. Mm. And then there was so much evidence I had to figure out, okay, I can only, I can't do everything. This is crazy. So I picked out like the 10 pivotal pieces of evidence that really turned the case from point to point. Mm -hmm. And then I, there were actually five, originally five detectives on the cold case team working this case for two years before they made the arrest. Well, you can't have five. You can't have five. <laughs> I mean, come on. Your readers like, will be getting confused and, oh, there's too many characters. Yeah. This isn't Game of Thrones. Come on. <laughs> I'm not there yet. So I was like, okay, I just need one. I knew I wanted a female. I knew I wanted a fish out of water and somebody who was broken and damaged because right we want to see broken characters be whole become whole so 
that's what that's she's probably the most fictional character and the other ones are all sort of loosely based off a combination of characters that i whose stories i thought were interesting i totally Does that answer the question? yeah yeah i totally fell in love with detective riley i thought she was just absolutely amazing and um a really cool character for us kind of feminist folk because she's she's mm. vulnerable but she's tough and she's smart, but she's not a superhero. Uh, absolute kudos. What a great heroine. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to do. I'm glad, I'm glad it worked for you. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of a follow-up to Riley, too. So Riley reads YA books to unwind, and we love that because right. um, we like to read <laughs> YA books, too. Uh, and you write about such intense stories. How do you unwind? Yeah, I watch comedy. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. Um, I do read a lot. I do read a lot. I love biographies. Um, I love, I do read YA. I love YA. Not a ton of it, but I I do read it. I honestly, I write, I mean, sorry, I run, I do yoga. I love to garden. I like to do stuff physically. You know, I like to cook. Um, I like to knit. I'm like a very boring person on (laughs) on a day to day. <laughs> You're basically reading off the list of the things that Sandra and I combined like to do. Yeah, these so. are our combined hobbies. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We should all get together and just knit or something. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I don't hate this idea at all. I think it sounds great. Yeah. Because that's important. Yeah. It's funny. Like during COVID, I really, really cut down my viewing habits. I watch, I, I mean, our television is barely ever on. It's interesting this year how I've just turned off the dial. Wow, that's cool. And I mean, especially, you know, it's, it's anything you can do for escapism, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So how has your writing process and your experience changed in 2020? Um, That's a great question. It hasn't changed at all. Not a single bit. Um, I was I was pretty much living the COVID life before all this. <laughs> You're already living quarantine <laughs> cottage style. Right, right, exactly. I was well prepared. I've been preparing this for preparing for this for 20 years. Uh, <laughs> no, I. Um, and by the way, I'm the person on the airplane who's like wiping everything down. I was doing this years ago, people, <laughs> with, and years ago, right? Um, I know really so gratefully it hasn't because I do. I'm so blessed. I get to work from home. I have a lovely little office. I have my writing routine already set up and COVID really didn't change that at all because I'm, I've been working from home for a very long time. So I just, the thing I don't love, which I think nobody's loved is just not being able to go places. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a hermit by any means. And so that's been kind of a bummer. Just not because I love going to coffee shops to write. Oh. Um, I like I, I like to write at home, but there's a part in the pro- especially the part in the process where that first draft where you just you're pouring so much energy into it. I for some reason I love to be more around people when I'm doing that part of the process. Oh, and cool. that, that energy, yeah, yeah, and that's been sad to me because I can't go to my coffee shops and just sit there and write. And yeah, I'm I want that back. 
Yeah. Um, well, you fair. you said a magic word when you said that you had your office. What do you surround yourself in your office when you're working? Yeah, paint us a picture. What does your office look like? We love to ask this. I love it. I'm so happy in my office. Okay, first of all, it's wall-to-wall bookshelves. <laughs> bookshelves. surrounded by books. I'm surrounded by my book friends. I have a lovely chair that I can lounge in. And there's always one or two of my dachshunds in the chair. So right now, my little doxy Sedona is sleeping, keeping me company. And yeah, I have a lot of like inspirational quotes. Hanging from the door is my skeleton. Yes. My magical skeleton. So my best friend, Amy, when I was in high school and we were all departing for college, she gave me like one of those, like, they're like maybe a foot tall and they're like at Halloween, those rubber skeletons, Yes, you know, that, yeah. So she gave me one of those and she dressed it in Barbie clothes. Oh, and I know, but it's, it's been like my towels since I left high school, but it always goes with me. Oh, and yeah. Is this yeah, Sam Jr.? It is. We do call it Sam, yeah. <laughs> Junior. And it was so cool. So what's kind of cute about that is so a- my best friend Amy um, from high school, she she loved what my dad did. And she became a nurse and, and she started nursing school while we were in high school. And she would a- accompany my dad on autopsies so that she could learn anatomy. Cool. And she yeah, she loved that. So she she worked with my dad a bit and he always was like teaching nurses and EMTs and stuff like that. So he's like, yeah, Amy, come along. And so she loved hanging out with him and learning stuff. So Ah. she was part of my, my coroner's world. (laughs) That's cool. That's so cool. Well, on a kind of a serious note too, uh, tell us about how this novel is in part a partnership with the Cold Case Foundation, because that's something I haven't come across in a lot of uh, crime fiction. Thank you. Um, Thanks for asking that. I'm really excited about this. So I found the Cold Case Foundation about a year ago, but I had been looking for a long time for some sort of organization. Um, I'm a philanthropist at heart. I love um, supporting amazing causes and donating my time or my money or whatever I can. And I was like, I want something that ties into my brand that, that I can support forever. You know, that, that is just part becomes a part of my brand and what I'm doing. And that proceeds of the things that I'm working on, you know, a portion of those can support the real heroes because let's like, I love writing about this and sort of, I can kind of do it from the protection of my lovely office and I can create these crime worlds and these heroes. But the, I've known a lot of the real heroes out there and they are the people who deserve the real praise. And I was like, I want to find just the right uh, organization to support. And I came across them very randomly or providentially, I guess. And I, and I was like, wow, I started reading their website. I was like, whoa, these people are exactly who I think I want to partner with. So I, I contacted them and had a succession of conversations with the executive directors who are both former FBI, they're profilers, they're former law enforcement. And now they've been running this nonprofit organization since 2014. It's amazing. We call them like the Avengers of crime oh. because they have, it's so cool because they have like, not only do they have this amazing sort of FBI profiling background that they use and they it's very unique 
way of investigating cold cases that most people aren't doing. And they have this pool of like 20 or 40, and it's growing professionals from all over the US and the world who are the top, some of the top fields. So they can tap into arson or DNA specialists or forensics or medical or the list goes on. So it's like they have these vendors at their fingertips. So when a case comes in, and currently they're working at about 200, when a case comes into them, they can say, oh, okay, we're going to put pool a team together to go take a second look at this cold case because they really believe that every case can be solved. It's just that the, there's usually what happens is there's a lack of resources. There's a lack of manpower or woman power. There's a lack of um, just time to be, to, to be able to do this. And so after about a year, a case goes cold. doesn't mean that it can't be solved. It just means that the, that police department, that law enforcement agency has had to move on because they are concerned about what's happening in the present and the future. Like, let's stop present crime. Let's stop future crime. And the, the past doesn't always, there's not always the time money for it. Yeah. So anybody who has a cold case can apply. Victims, families can apply. Law enforcement agencies can apply. And then they will review the case. And if they're able to work on it, they'll pool the, this team of crime-fighting Avengers to get on the case and, and use fresh eyes and a fresh technique to, to solve it. So I fell in love with them and they have my undying support. So absolute superheroes. Really beautiful. So cool. Keep fighting the good fight. We believe in you out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're um, the kind of second cool part to that is they're starting up a victim prevention program, which is a little unique. It's also has kind of unique, unique techniques to it. (laughs) I feel like, Anchorman um, <laughs> <laughs> techniques, and they uh, they're getting this ambas- ambassador program together, and I'm going to be one of their first ambassadors to help Ooh. them train others in victim prevention. Congratulations! So. Hey. Yes, because you know I write we we read about victims, we write about victims. It's entertainment for us, right? And we watch these shows, but. None of us want to be a victim. <laughs> so. Of course. Right. So what can we do to even, yeah, it's so important. Right. So there's some very, very simple things that I, even I had never thought about that they're training and ways that they're training. And I'm like, yeah, I want to be a part of this. I want to, you know, yeah, it's fun to read about them. It's, it's escapist. It's, but all right, in our real lives, let's, let's completely try to reduce our risks to become victims of crime. Oh, that is so cool. And and kind of on that note, too, where can listeners and readers find you and follow you on your journeys and uh, find out what's next? Yes. Come join me on my journeys. Be a part of the journey. Yes. Uh, my website has everything. JenniferDornbush.com. Two N's. JenniferDornbush.com. Uh, D-O-R-N-B-U-S-H. And everything there, all the social media links, all the books, all the everything. There's forensic resources and all kinds of fun things. So yeah, lots of lots of new journeys ahead. And I, I welcome anyone into the community. Wow. Well, we will be joining you there. Yep, we will be. You've got at least Yay. two more. At awesome. least. Yeah. yeah, there's many, many good things to come. So well, thank you so much. It has been such a delight to talk to you, and it has been—it was such a uh, a refre- refreshingly unique take on the true crime uh, genre, which we really appreciated. Oh, 
Oh, thank you. What a cracking good interview. <laughs> it was cracking good. We don't say that in America, so it sounds really fake when I say it. Because <laughs> it is pretty fake when we say it. But I like that term. I know, it's a really good turn of phrase. It's really good cracking, thumping. It just, yeah, I can't sell it. But it was that good. <laughs> okay, so from here on out, we're going to talk about spoilers. So, of course, if you don't want to be spoiled, um, you know, read the book, come back, and, and then join us again. Yeah. That's how we do it, genre junkies. <laughs> okay. So, uh, the first thing that I want to address is it's very, it's it, it was very um, different for me to be reading a book where I knew who the who the 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 culprits were mm-hmm. at the very beginning that, that I knew that the brothers are the ones who did it. I right. kept expecting there to be some sort of twist right. that it wasn't them because that's what I've been trained yes. to expect. But no, they're assholes. <laughs> yeah, they're and they evil. did it. Yeah. And everyone knows they did it. That's kind of the that's kind of one of the cruxes of, of this whole book is that yeah. when something happens, we've had conversations about this. Someone knows about it. Somebody always knows. And it's just, they don't talk about it. It's mm-hmm. the town secret. It's, yeah. it's, it's a secret it's a, for some it's reason. A secret. It's a shame. It's, you know, things were not uh, uncovered correctly. You know, it, it's, it's complicated how these things have to work, um, especially in a real life context. And I'm Scott and I are not in law enforcement, so we don't really know what we're talking about. But like, you have to have the right evidence and everything. And, you know, there's like, there's a process to go through. It can't just be, well, we all know they did it. So arrest them. Like, you know, that's not how that's not how it works. Um, and I think sometimes these things take a long time for the people to have to be accountable for their crimes. Um, and I'm so glad that in this book, and in the true story of Shannon, that this that that happened for her. Yes, I, it, it's and it t- it it took. I don't want to say it took too long because it took as long as it had to. I don't want to. I feel like saying it took too long is assigning blame to the investigators or or to the investigation. Yeah, and but we, and did, we don't. Yeah, yeah. But it did take too long. It took too long because. You know, like, again, like the town, the people had to live with this. People had to live with these um, really awful people that committed this. And, you know, it it seems like this sort of thing just, it, it tears a place in two. And it really, it really spoke to me when Jennifer talked about her father and how he, he investigate, like he tried to figure out what the murder weapon is for years yeah. after this. It yeah. was, it, 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 it became a part of him and a yeah. part of his thoughts so much because of the, the horrible nature of this crime. It affects so many people. Right. And, you know, now we all know that the weapon was this tool. And that's not something that everybody would know what that is. Like, I probably wouldn't recognize it. Like if I saw it someplace, and I probably wouldn't have even with all my amateur sleuthing, (laughs) been like, oh, that's clearly blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer did a really good job of describing exactly what the tool would look like. Yeah. And I kept trying to rack my brain. Okay, let me see if I can figure out what would cause this sort of thing yeah and i couldn't come up with it either because if you've never worked on roofs yeah you probably 
have no reason to ever see that tool. And you don't want me to work on your roof. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I would get disinterested and leave and the job would never get done. That's not the point. <laughs> um, so the, the fact of the matter is, is that it's a good mystery kind of because it's real. Yeah. You know, like, not that there isn't wonderful fictionalized mysteries, but it's like, since this is something that really happened, Mm -hmm. this is why it was hard to get the case from point A to point B. And and I have to imagine that that has to be very hard as an author to take a story that anyone can see, okay, this is based on this real story. Let me read all about that real story first and then read the book and then, okay, well, how do you add surprises? How do you right. keep it interesting at that point? Right. And that's where her incredible characters come in. Right. And uh, gosh, in a way, this sounds bad, but it's like, how do you make people care? Like, how do you make people care about real cases and real things that happen? Well, take it, but make a fictionalized account. And she does a lot about talking in this and in the afterward portions we talk in the interview about cold cases and you know that foundation and stuff and so then it's like oh okay and you know that somewhere someone's going to read this book who might not care that is now going to care about real people's crimes um and, and i think a part of that is sometimes it can be so cold and so textbook to read just like this is a true crime this is what happened. But if you can flourish it and breathe life into it, it's a lot easier to have compassion. And maybe, you know, fictionalizing it was a really important way to do that. And as much as I love the fictionalization and as, and as much as I love the characters, the thing that made this book for me more than anything else is keeping Nina alive. Yes. Yes. Um, keeping her, her consciousness yeah, alive. Right. It was such a uh, a refre- refreshingly unique take on the true crime uh, genre, which we really appreciated. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Tell- now, that's interesting. Tell me what you mean by that. I love that. Where it's kind of unique and refreshing? Yeah. 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 Well, I think... I think there's a tendency and I, I, you know, as somebody who's, like I said, a lifelong uh, true crime, you know, follower, that we get a little, everything seems a little samesy sometimes and formulaic in how you tell the story. And it's nice when you can look at it and you see this different perspective. Like I know Scott, one of the things he's referring to is the perspective of Nina in this story. It's very much so. Um, and getting some humanization. And of course, in the real world, we have Bob's note at the end. And, you know, just kind of this feeling of like, this isn't just same old, same old paint by numbers, true crime. It's humanizing. Mm-hmm. Very humanizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Um, and I love that uh, kind of what she's going through is tied into her as um, an indigenous person, mm-hmm. too. I thought that was really, really cool. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I know I've said this before. Uh, I'm not a fan of whitewashing everything in Abrahamic religious overtones. Yes. <laughs> and, you know... It, and it makes it so much more special that this is um, we're seeing through Nina's eyes, her account of her being kind of stuck in a way that feels 
true to that person. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And I also feel like while her spiritual journey, if you will, was rooted in 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 a way in her indigenous roots it wasn't going into a whole explanation or a or a magicalization yes, of yes. her heritage yes it you know she used some, her heritage and things that her mother had told her yeah. as ways to frame what she was experience experiencing yeah but it wasn't because she was indigenous that she was experiencing this yes that was a frame of reference to what was happening i agree like from our perspective as non-indigenous people i would say it didn't do that and it was like a breath of fresh air and very much like oh thank god <laughs> like, yes. like that that didn't happen mm-hmm. um and i i hope that that is how other folks interpret it because i i feel that jennifer was trying yet again to bring a perspective a humanization a this is this person and their life and their experience and you know instead of just this is a girl and you know she was in the wrong place at the wrong time and she was a loose a loose woman and this is what happens to her you know like i jennifer did not do that at all and it's 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 wonderful and she brought so many compassionate touches and I did not come into the book with really any um, fears or prejudices. Yes. Um, yeah. It was only after the book, after I finished the book, that I really was started thinking back like, wow, this could have gone into a bad direction. Yeah, totally. Um I'd be I'd be interested to hear from other people, you know, who maybe do have prejudices about true crime representations and and when it comes to, you know, as you said earlier tonight, you know, people who think, you know, people who like true crime are sickos. <laughs> I'd be interested in their perspective of this book because I think that I mean, if this is as 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 humanizing as you can get. Right. I I see totally what you mean there. I also want to say I absolutely love that she adopted a retired police dog. Oh my god. And and Sandra and I both had the same reaction. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. when this dog was introduced. Mm-hmm. If you hurt this dog. Yes. We, we riot about it. Yeah. We, we riot. Yeah. And I think part of that, and I I don't know how well we discussed this in, in the interview or if that's going to make it into here, but, I, you know, like, I think a part of it is just when you're reading about things that are terrible and that are hard, such as someone's brutal rape and murder, you need wins. You need wins. <laughs> you need a win somewhere. And so then it's like, you know, you get this adorable, wonderful dog and it's like, okay, I see what you could do here, ma'am. But I will ma'am you if you do this. <laughs> like, no, just let us have let us have some wins here. And the other thing, and I don't know if this was intentional by Jennifer or not, but you and I have very similar viewpoints when it comes to the idea of the guard dog. And, you know, she didn't go pick up a pit bull. Right. She went and picked up a trained professional who she loved and cared for and loved and cared for her in return. 
Yes. And just was highly trained, had a very specific set of skills. I was Liam Neeson of dogs. And in case you can tell how Scott was meaning that, we love pit bulls. We adore them. Exactly. And we're saying, like, don't take something and be like, this is a killer. And like, yeah, no, that would have been so gross. And I probably would have called her out about that. Yeah. And then... um. I guess the final thing that I want to talk about mm-hmm. is, and I should have asked Jennifer yeah. if she fly fishes. Oh yeah, because oh yeah, there's a whole there's a whole fishing thing, which, as we know, that's very relevant to our beloved Scott here. And you know, because I, I I do not meditate. I am not a meditative person. I meditate, but the closest that <laughs> I get to meditating uh-huh. is fishing, and it is it can be a very calming, even spiritual. Uh, experience that just that quiet with the sound of the water and all of the nature around you and and i i appreciated that viewpoint that that way of of disconnecting and and especially when he said hey we don't talk about those things out here Mm. on the water yeah that's not that's not what this place is for you pumped your fist didn't you i did like i did you don't bring that drama here you'll bring that here um i would have to imagine too like so like i just kind of said i i do meditate and i'm a yogi um and it's like i imagine that fly fishing in those motions are a lot like yoga in a way you know there's kind of like the the repeat and like the pose and like the action and a way to focus but also be like to clear your mind but to also be very in the moment you know yes yeah 100 yeah so there's a muscle memory to it but you always have to adjust for the conditions yes yeah and and so there is Yes, all of those things. That you know, maybe we should start like how goat yoga had a thing. <laughs> like <laughs> just we'll, fl- fly fishing yoga. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> perfect, perfect combination. Um, stay tuned. <laughs> That'll be a Patreon level. You, you can jo- you can join our our fly fishing yoga studio for yeah. nine ninety nine a month. <laughs> At ninety nine ninety nine ninety nine a month. <laughs> Selling ourselves a little short, are we? <laughs> we need a lot of money. <laughs> oh, I think it's time to give this book a rating. Let's do it. Okay, so I'm going to go first then. Okay. So um, I very, 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 very much enjoyed this book. Um, I enjoyed talking to Jennifer. I highly endorse this book being read, and I found it to be um, very, very satisfying. Uh, very satisfying, very reflective. Uh, reflectful, moving, great experience. And for that, I shall give this novel eight and a half case files. Out of 10? Out of 10. Out of 10. Yes. Okay. Well done. Well done, my friend. I am also going to give it eight and a half case files, but out of five. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you just have to like one up me. No, but, but seriously... This is in contention for book of the year for me. This is a Scott book of the year. This this is this absolutely It took me by absolute surprise. Um I was you know I was a little bit hesitant to review this book for the show. Uh, um It's something different for us. It's something different for us and it's also something different for me. It's out of your comfort zone. And so I mean Maybe I've even discovered a new genre that I like that I didn't used to be super into. Or maybe this book is just such 
a fantastic combination of the 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 clinical fascination with true crime and the and the the beautiful creation and discovery of characters and their life experiences i adore this book and i think it is more than perfect oh can i i mean can i get a little bit of a shout out like i've tried for 14 years to get you into true crime you have and and jennifer succeeded stop it <laughs> take that no, back you you absolutely laid the groundwork for I me a foundation Jennifer. you laid the foundation <laughs> build for which you could build upon my friend you, you gave me the vocabulary yes with which to understand and then and then jennifer wrote the story for me to fall in love with perfect Thank you, Jennifer, so much for writing this incredible, incredible book. Thank you for sharing with us um, and the readers this story, uh, the story of your father and so much about your own personal life. And thank you especially for, for doing our show this week. We were so honored to have you, and we look forward to speaking with you again. Yes, and reading more of your works to come. All right, everybody, that's it for us. Scott. Sandra. Thank you. Thank you. Stitches, thank you. <laughs> and uh, readers and listeners at home, we will talk to you. Uh, we've got one more novel for this month before we get into October and it's going to be quite an interesting, fun uh, spooky read. We're kind of getting a little bit of a jump. Big grin. A little bit of a jump in October. Alright everybody, thank you so much and please keep reading past your bedtime. The way your headphones are right now, you look like a turnip because oh, you just have hair? this little piece of hair sticking yeah, up. Yeah, because I'm balding and like so it sits right on my bald edges here. I know. You look like a turnip. I need I need I need headphones that kind of do this. They make some that have like both. That's probably worse, huh? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Wear the headphones so that you're comfortable, please. It was just the darndest thing. I just looked over and I was like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You have to cut all that. Mm.